Okay, so can we open up our Bibles uh, to Psalm 2? That's in the Old Testament. When D.L. Moody was asked to look up Revelation, he tried to find it in Genesis when he was uh, first trying to apply to become a member of a church in the old days. And they said that he was not allowed to become a member uh, of whatever high church it was because he did not know where Revelation was. (laughs) And then he read through the Bible over 400 times in his lifetime. And he became a man that was used to God, though he only had a grade 8. So, we're going to look at Psalm 2 uh, in the Old Testament. I'm going to read through it quickly. And then I'm going to uh, preach a sermon. Uh, Let's read it and then we'll pray. Uh, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, uh, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall He speak unto them in His wrath and vex them in His sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Uh, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest ye be angry and ye perish from the way. Uh, When his wrath is kindled but a little... Uh, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Now, how many of you have heard, before we pray, of Charles Spurgeon? Just out of interest. Negative or positive, doesn't matter. I love Charles Spurgeon. Um, he wrote, his most famous book that he wrote was, or compilation was, The Treasury of David, which is a kind of commentary on the Psalms. He loved the Psalms. And uh, he missed some things in the Psalms. Uh, all of us can find things that other people miss. The Bible actually says it's there. Uh, but uh, an amazing thing, if you want to um, get a little, have fun with yourself when you do Bible study, go and read the treasury of David. Um, but ultimately speaking, uh, one of the things that made Psalms so precious to him, not only is it filled with doctrine that is repeated in the New Testament, not only is there many prophecies of Christ, many people have been saved just reading a psalm and realizing that 2,000 years before Jesus was born and died, um, it was written almost to the letter what would happen in his life. This is a living, self-proving book. And, and the Psalms are full of comfort, they're full of doctrine, they're full of encouragement. And often when people read the Psalms, the only thing they get out of it is that it's encouraging and easier to read than the rest of Scriptures. I find a lot of Christians ask, what, what do you read? I'm reading the Psalms. Why are you reading the Psalms? Well, I always read the Psalms because they're easy to read. And they don't know what they're reading. They just get some very nice little comforting quotes out of it. And the Psalms are life-changing. They are absolutely phenomenally amazing. And I hope this morning that even those of you who have read through the Bible 400 times, that you'll learn something from this sermon this morning. We're just going to take Psalm 2, and we're going to look at it. And uh, there's some things there that a lot of people miss, unfortunately. And even one little thing that Spurgeon missed, and I'll explain that to you a little later. Um, But let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much uh, for the Word of God. Like, like Proverbs says, it's layered up, it's piled up wisdom 
out of your mouth that this knowledge has come. And I, I do want to pray this morning that you'll take these few fish and loaves of bread, the simplicity of a psalm, that you'll break it open and that you'll feed us, Lord, and that you'll change our lives. Reveal unto us God, the God who made heaven and earth, the God in whose hand, like Daniel said, our breath is, the God who made, sustained uh, the world by the word of God and will one day judge us and the world by his own word. Father, we look to thee and we ask thee to take over this meeting. Father, I am nothing and can do nothing, but oh God, that you would shine upon our hearts and show us our need and be the answer to that need through Jesus Christ. Thank you for working in the past and thank you that you are God who hears prayer and to thee shall all flesh come in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Paraphrase. Okay, so just by way of introduction quickly, a little story. In Luke chapter 6, you have a very interesting verse. It basically says, given it shall be given unto you. Um, what has that got to do with the psalm? I'll explain in a moment. But I want to give you a little uh, illustration from my own life. And what I love about a testimony is to tell over what God has done in your life, basically, uh, from the Christian perspective. And uh, you can bring things up where God healed people. You can talk about where God saved people, wrought repentance in their life. You can talk about answers to prayer. And you can talk about times that God taught us to understand when he said no or he did something else. Uh, but give and it shall be given unto you is a very interesting little verse. I remember when I was at Bible college 20 years back, I bought a seven, in South Africa, rands, about 70 rand, about $5 equivalent pan flute. And I took this, and I was very proud of it. It was out of tune. It didn't work very well, but I used to play the notes, and I was proud that I had a little pamphlet that I bought from some Zulus in South Africa in the mountains. I'd been driving past. I saw these pamphlets. I bought it. I came back to Bible college. I had my pamphlet, and it was a little missionary uh, child, or so we say, a missionary family that came to the Bible college for a conference, and a little child was there, and he looked. You know, seven-year-old child, they can have this look. And some people, Americans, know how to be cruel, but I, 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 when a child looks like that, it's very hard for me. This child is looking at my pamphlet, and he walks up and he holds it, and he looks at me and he holds it, and basically I said to him, you can have my pamphlet. Now, I want to emphasize, this was a cheap pamphlet. It was $5. It cost absolutely nothing. The Bible says you shouldn't let your right hand know what your left hand does when it comes to giving, but I want to emphasize I gave very little, okay? Now, about a year later, I saw in a shop, actually, I prayed to God, and I said, God, could you please give me a pamphlet? And I walked into an old lady's house, and she had this broken backwards pamphlet with broken sticks, and she said, would you like to have this? And I took it. It was like a $300 pamphlet, equivalent American dollars, and it was backwards. In other words, the notes, instead of being from low to high, they were from high to low. And it was, I, my brain is not clever enough to play things backwards. So I couldn't play it even if it was fixed and it was broken. But I went to shops and I asked the shops uh, that had pamphlets for sale. And I walked into the shop and I saw the most beautiful pamphlets for four, five, six hundred dollars equivalent. And there was these 23 hole and 40 and 50 and 60 hole pamphlets. And they were beautifully made and uh, like pan pipes, European style with wooden bases. And I was like, this is absolutely amazing. And they told me where I could fix that pamphlet. So I got the number. But I wanted to buy a real pamphlet. So I phoned my dad. I only earned, at that stage, $60 a month. And these pamphlets were $400. And I, I phoned my dad. And I said, Dad, you know that cupboard 
that Granny's going to give me when she dies? Can't I just take it and sell it? Because I'm not using it, and I probably will never use it, and probably it's enough, this antique cupboard, for me to get a pamphlet. And I thought my dad would love the idea, and my dad said no. And I love my dad, but it was irritating. And so I put the phone down, and I said a prayer, and I said, God, if you want to give me a pamphlet, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can give me a pamphlet. And... Uh, I went and I drove across the town to this area. I met this guy who was making these pamphlets and selling them for hundreds and hundreds of dollars with beautiful cases. And I saw all his beautiful pamphlets. I met him for five minutes. He was not a Christian. He worked in a casino. He'd never heard of my dad before. He'd never heard of our mission before. Uh, but he spoke to me for five minutes. I didn't tell him I wanted to buy a pamphlet. I just looked at these things and it was absolutely amazing. And he took it and he said he'd charge me a certain amount of money for that pamphlet. I went home. The next day, I prayed to God again. I said, God, if you want to, you can get me a pamphlet. And as I prayed and I said, Amen, my phone rang. And it was the guy who worked in the casino. And he said, I've never had this happen to me before in my life, but are you like a preacher or something? And I said, yes. He said, do you work in churches? I said, yes. He said, I don't understand it, but something bigger than me is telling me that I've got to give you a pamphlet. Amen. And that same thing is telling me that I have to fix the other pamphlet for free. And so he gave me a beautiful pamphlet. Now, I found out immediately that I didn't have given to me the ability to play it immediately, but... <laughs> I also found out that there was a minister who could only play instruments backwards that had longed for a pamphlet. And so when I met him, I was like, that's why I've got the one I can't use. <laughs> it's fully fixed. <laughs> but I want to emphasize something. I gave very little to get a lot. There's an illustration that has, that has hung with me for the last 20 years. I listened to a sermon of an uh, overseas uh, Asian preacher. And he said, imagine that you're a beggar on the side of the street and you've got a few pennies You've got a few pennies in your, in, your, in your cup. And a very rich man comes by, and he's like, phenomenally rich, he's a $100 million guy, and he looks down at you, and he says, listen, I'm willing to give you a house, I'm willing to give you a, a salary, I'm willing to give you um, uh, uh, food and comfort and cars and whatever you want, but I've got a question for you. I'd like one thing in return. And that beggar looks up and says, what would you like? I'd like the pennies in your cup. Now, most beggars would say, yeah, <laughs> have it, <laughs> great. But imagine someone was so stupid that they said, sir, I'm not willing to give up these pennies. Every single one of us would look at that person and say, you're being stupid. But that's exactly what Christians do. And that's exactly what unsaved people do when it keeps them from, as Christians, the fullness of Jesus Christ. And as unsaved people, Jesus Christ himself, they look at their pennies and they say their sin and their, and their fun and their things that they hold on to and they say, well, I'm not willing for that, to give up this little bit for you. And that has stuck with me for 20 years since I heard that little illustration. I, in fact, wrote a little song about it, which I will not sing tonight. So let's go into Psalm 2 with the thought that God has given us infinitely greater than what we have given to Him. We haven't exchanged. It's not like God owed me for giving Him a pamphlet. 
Uh, but whatever we could ever give to God is incomparable to what God gave when he gave his son. Um, so here we have Psalm 2 verse 1 to 3. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers uh, uh, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast off their cords from us. Now immediately, we're going to find out in the psalm, the Jews don't believe this, but we as Christians will very soon understand that this psalm is talking about not just God the Father, but His Son, Jesus Christ. And so there's a rebellion. We are introduced into a rebellion in this world. A rebellion against God and against His Son. And there's people who do not want to be under the authority of God. They don't want the bands of God. And it's not just people who go to church or people who walk down the streets. It's, it's the very governments of the earth, the rulers and the kings, are, are, are coordinated together. Uh, God originally placed them uh, uh, for another reason, according to Romans, but led by Satan, there's this rebellion across the world against uh, a God. And they want to cast off all his bands and all his authority and all that he requires of them. Now, I find something very interesting. A lot of people are neutral when it comes to this. They think they are, and they think that they're not part of this rebellion. I have uh, two friends. One of them is now a minister in South Africa. I remember when he was still unsaved, and he was drinking, and he was doing girls. And his brother was even worse. <laughs> I believe he was on drugs and getting drunk. And someone walked up to his brother and said to him, Do you realize that there's a rebellion that has been led by Satan and that you are part of it? You can't say that you're neutral. This rebellion, you either for Jesus or you for Satan. You can't say, I'm getting drunk for myself. You can't say, I'm doing a, a sin for myself. You're doing it against God. You're in a rebellion. If you never even think about God, you're still part of the rebellion and you've been led by Satan all the way to hell in your rebellion against God Almighty. And that struck him for some reason as he realized, I'm not just doing all these things. I'm part of a rebellion being led by a person who hates me, and that led him to the point of realizing that if I'm in rebellion against Jesus Christ, then the answer is, based on what he did on Calvary, we died for my sins and he rose again, I need to come and I need to be saved, and I need to surrender to the king that I'm in rebellion against. But there's something interesting here. The language that is used almost seems to put God in a bad light. It's like he's a bondage, there's cords, as if God, is, God himself, they think, is... Is, is binding them. And Spurgeon at one stage brought this up, but it basically comes down to God is a bondage breaker, not a bondage bringer. Right at the very beginning, if you go to uh, the beginning of the Bible there in Genesis 1, 2, 3, you see that, that Satan starts to put into the heart of man that God is not good. And he does this by adding to the Word of God. Eve changed the Word of God. She says, lest we should die. But Satan immediately says, Hath God said that she shall not, shall not eat of all the trees of the garden? He immediately sowed into the heart of Eve and Adam indirectly the thought that this God is a bondage God. He has given you very little leeway. He's there. And God had every right to allow them not to eat of all the trees of the garden if he so wished. But ultimately, he was sowing into their hearts that God is not good and he's holding stuff back from you. And this lie has resonated through the ages. The very first attack of Satan on God's word by questioning it, by lying about it, but ultimately by adding to it 
was his first a weapon against the Word of God and the person of God. People believe in so many cases that God is not good. He's a bondage giver. And we need to cast off his cords from us. And, and these Christians are part of this evil system. And they're the reason everything's going wrong. And so ultimately speaking, uh, God is not good. And so you've got the whole world in rebellion against God. But even if, by the way, this rebellion is not just if you are drunk and sleeping around and going to LGBTQ events, this, this, this rebellion can be sitting in church. And you know the gospel, but you don't take heed to it. Charles Spurgeon said that the only thing you have to do to be godless is not get drunk, not murder someone, not go around lying to everybody. The only thing you have to do to be godless is to live without God and be all right with that. And a lot of people sit in church, they have not responded to the gospel, they have not repented, they have not taken it seriously, they are not actively seeking God, and they think because they're sitting in church and they're not killing people, they're not godless, they're not the evil people, but they are part of that rebellion, following Satan while sitting in church, just as much as the person who murders and gets drunk, according to Charles Spurgeon and the Bible, and they're absolutely, he's absolutely right. So, one little thing that's interesting about this verse is that it not only talks about this rebellion, but it says it's a vain thing. A vain thing means an empty thing, a useless thing. It's absolutely stupid. It's incredulous that anybody could think that they could rebel against God and get away with it. It's stupid. Now, I've got an illustration. This is a South African illustration. Basically, there's these ants. You guys in America, you're clever. You know what ants are, Okay. So there's these ants, and they are, I remember at public school, we used to egg each other on, if that's the right word, to, to either be naughty or be good or to do something funny or to have a fight with somebody. Okay, definitely we're not Amish. And so uh, these ants were like that. They're public school ants, and they are, the one guy is a boastful ant. He, they, they look at the elephants in the distance, and this one ant says, ah, those elephants, they're nothing. I could take on those elephants. Man, they, I'm strong. Look, I can pick up five times my own weight. And the other, the other ants go and look at this ant and say, hey, why don't you do it? Oh, I would do it any day, you know, but I'm just being lazy, and it's a lot of work to go across the garden. No, 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 you scared. <laughs> You're scared of that elephant. No, I'm not scared of that elephant. Prove it. Okay. I'll go. There, about 30 yards away, 30, is this elephant. And so he starts his uh, trek. His name is Johnny, by the way. Johnny the ant. And Johnny the ant is going. And he's going. But now it takes about 20 minutes to get about halfway. And all the way, the, all the ants are standing there. And they're going, go, Johnny. Go, Johnny. Go, Johnny. And Johnny's going. But... 20 minutes later, he's a few feet away from the big elephant, the, the matriarch, uh, patriarch, whatever. And he, um, he's going, and they go, Johnny, go, Johnny. But he's getting a bit tired, this ant. It's quite far to get to this uh, big elephant. Now, the elephant has no idea. He doesn't know there's an ant coming for him. He's just, he's just enjoying himself. And so this ant goes, eventually the ant, he's very tired now, but he gets to the foot of that elephant, the front left foot. And he starts going, he says, you know, it's a long way. And then he hears, go, Johnny, go, Johnny. It's okay, I'll go. And so about 10 minutes later, he's got halfway up that elephant. And he looks down. It's quite a far way down. But he's like, you know, do I, I've already proved my point, Evan. And then suddenly he hears, go, Johnny, go, Johnny. And he's like, okay. And he goes on. 
and he goes on, and eventually he's very tired, but he gets to the neck of the elephant, and when he gets to the neck of the elephant, he hears in the distance, strangle him, Johnny, strangle him, Johnny. <laughs> and it's absolute stupidity. But that, that we laugh at, that, the ant, that any ant would ever think to do that, that is what the world is doing against God. Infinitely greater than an elephant compared to an ant is, is, is the whole of mankind and all the armies put together. He, you could put all the atom bombs of the world and, that could ever be made and, 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 and steer it at God if you could even do that, and he wouldn't even know that a fly had touched him. And yet the world thinks that they can rebel against God and get away with it. Absolute stupidity. The Bible says in Proverbs 11 verse 21, Their hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. You can't join the hands of all mankind together and think that something good is going to come out of that. Now that is the introduction to the psalm, those verses. And now we get that psalm, uh, uh, 2 verse 1 to 3. And now we're going to get to the very interesting part. There's two parts to the psalm that is life-changing. Most Christians have ever sat down with, even ministers, for some reason, don't get the basics of the psalm. And one of the desires of my heart, uh, we had the sermon this morning, uh, we had the sermon last night on discipleship, etc. This morning we had a sermon on continuing in the Word of God uh, that you uh, may know the truth and the truth may set you free. Ultimately speaking, what excites you more than, than, than sitting down with the Bible, finding out stuff you didn't know before that is life-changing concerning God, concerning yourself, and concerning what God wants to teach us? And I'd be interested if, if any of you would like to tell me afterwards if there's things here that, that excite you that maybe you didn't know before. Because I want to tell you something. Every single psalm is this exciting. There's one or two that are a little less exciting. But most of them, if you want a sermon as a preacher, Proverbs is the valley of a thousand sermons. Every single psalm could be ten sermons and life-changing sermons. It's phenomenal. <laughs> I want there to be excitement in people's hearts. I don't understand it when people are not excited about the Word of God. So let's look at this. Psalm 2, verse 6 to 7. This is something Spurgeon missed, by the way. Um, Yet have I set my king, I'll tell you the part he missed, upon the holy hill, and my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now there's so much in that verse, it is insane. <laughs> Number one, we read of a God that thinks it's absolutely vain and stupid for a world to be in rebellion against him. And, and his son, remember, it's against his anointed, against the Lord and against his anointed. It's against God and his son, Jesus Christ. And God says, you know what? You're all against me? <laughs> uh, well, um, thank you very much. The whole armies are there against God. I've declared my son to be king. absolutely amazing. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. But what exactly, what exactly does it mean when it says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. This is the part that Spurgeon missed when I read his treasury of David Psalm 2 many years back. I'd like us to open up our Bible to Acts chapter 13, verse 33. A lot of people don't understand what it means to be begotten. They think it means that God gave birth to His Son, Jesus Christ, many years back. Um, some people don't understand the basic meaning of this verse. 
Okay, Acts 13 verse 33 explains it very clearly. God hath fulfilled the same unto us. That's Acts 13, 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Now listen to these words. As it is written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now I've met many people who read through the psalm, it's encouraging to them, it's wonderful, but they don't even know it's a resurrection psalm. It's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the psalms are full of treasures like this. It's amazing. And what it means to us, we're going to have a look at this. So when it says these words, and you read through psalm, say, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then it goes on to say, Thou art my son, uh, this day have I begotten thee. It doesn't mean that there was a birth somewhere or a beginning only somewhere. It means that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what it means. You see, you have to understand something about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was a coronation psalm. Many of the Jewish kings, they would actually quote, the more godly ones would quote in Jewish tradition, they would quote Psalm 2 while they were having the crown put on their head. So when it says, but, and this is the beautiful thing, it's not just a Jewish coronation crown, uh, a psalm, it is the coronation psalm of Jesus Christ. When did God declare His Son to be King? Now Jesus is eternally King, but when did God declare His Son to be King? When He rose from the dead. He was the eternal King, but that was His coronation. That's what Psalm 2 is talking about. Romans 1 verse 4, when speaking of Jesus Christ, states, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. How did God declare Jesus to be the Son of God with power? That, that moment He rose from the dead, that was when He said, I've set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. Now understand the story. The whole world is in rebellion against God. God laughs because it's stupid. And they think they have a victory because in their rebellion it comes to a point where they murder God's own son. And they really think that he doesn't have to be their king. And God, on the holy hill of Zion, uh, raises him from the dead. That's what Acts 13 uh, 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 says. He raises him from the dead, as Psalm uh, uh, 2 says. And at that moment, he says, this is the king through the resurrection. But let's read on. Psalm 2 verse 8, it goes on to these famous words, which are repeated, by the way, in Revelation over three times. Um, well, the verse that comes after it, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So I want you to now get the full picture. There's rebellion against God. Everybody's part of it. <laughs> if you don't know Jesus Christ. And they murdered his own son. And then God says according to Acts that this is talking about the moment that he rose from the dead. He was declared to be king. And then all power is given unto him. I'm going to show this from scripture. God says, ask of me and I'll give you anything. And we know from Revelation 2 verse 27, 12 verse 5 and 19 verse 15 that there's coming a time 
when Jesus will reign on earth with a rod of iron. That part most Christians get. But they miss the other part. Let us open up our Bibles to Matthew 28. Now this makes me cry many times. Because a lot of people don't get this. When did God give all power to Jesus? We know that the Bible says we don't see it yet fully. But when did he receive all power? In the future? The moment he rose from the dead. That's what the Bible teaches in various different passages. Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now let me ask a question. Does this say all power will one day be given to me in heaven and earth? No. All power is given unto me. And God literally said to him, Ask of me, and I'll give you the heathen for the inheritance. You can do what you want with them. Before Jesus went to the cross, I want you to understand this. Before Jesus went to the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But after he rose from the cross, God said, all power is given unto me. And you know what? He didn't say, destroy the people that tried to rebel against me. You know what he said? All power is given unto me. Go ye therefore and preach the gospel. Imagine God was like some Christians when they had power in their hands against their enemies. Now I can get that. All power was given to Jesus. He was given. And this is what it talks about the resurrection. It goes straight into the fact that God says you can do what you want with the nations. And that's going to happen one day anyway. But in the meantime, God said, listen, I want as many to be saved as possible. Go into all the world, preach the gospels, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Isn't that phenomenal? <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> and I mean it. This psalm is endless. Let's read the rest. Psalm 2, verse 10 to 12. We'll um, uh, uh, <coughs> uh, read that now. Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. In other words, guys, you think you're rebelling it against a God that you can maybe overcome. It's vain. And even when you kill my son, I'm going to declare him to be king on that holy hill of Zion. And I've given all power into his hands. And we know that with that power, he said, go preach the gospel. <laughs> but then we read these amazing words. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now I have a sermon many years back on sleep. And when I preached on sleep, amazingly a lot of people responded to the sermon while I was preaching. They were sleeping. Um, the one person came to me and said, it was the first sermon I didn't feel bad to sleep in. I have another sermon on kissing in the Bible. Amazing how people's faces turn when for some reason if you say that word. But 
why not study everything? <laughs> the Bible is full of pictures, especially the Hebrew. And, and, and I find it amazing that very few people know about the different types of kisses in the Bible. You have, I'm not going to give them all, yeah, but you have family or friendly kiss. An example of this is a, fa a family kiss, like a husband, a son, or a husband, daughter, a father, daughter, um, brother, sister. Exodus 18, verse 7, Ruth 1, verse 14. You have brotherly kisses in Genesis 45, verse 15. You have spiritual brotherly kisses. That's very scary. In Romans 16, verse 16, I came to America. In South Africa, we do not do that, okay? And I went to this, like, plain brethren place, and this guy with a big beard, and he was dirty, and there was stuff coming out. He was just, and he came towards me. I didn't know what was happening. I was just a teenager, and and here he comes, and suddenly this big face is coming towards me, and the next moment, these big ugly lips. And I was, I don't want to go into details, but it was terrible. <sighs> oh, praise the Lord, he said afterwards. I don't know what I said. There are different types of kisses. There is the kiss of betrayal. There were kisses of idols. Judas had the kiss of betrayal. But you know, one of the kisses that is mentioned twice in the Bible, I believe three times, very few Christians ever talk about and that is what we call the regal kiss once it is found in 1 Samuel 10 verse 1 and the second time it is found is in the last verse here of Psalm Psalm 2 verse sorry Psalm 2 verse 12 <coughs> this is called a regal kiss a regal kiss is when you declare someone to be king with a kiss so Psalm 2 uh, some uh, sorry um uh, uh, 1 Samuel 10 verse 1 Samuel came to Saul and he kissed him before he said that you're going to be the captain of the Lord's host it's called a regal kiss in the old eastern times and Jewish culture and those nations around there you often would kiss someone to declare them a prophet would kiss them to declare them you are king how many Christians miss this it's full of it it's wonderful it's amazing it's the Psalms <laughs> amen but yeah we have this message. Now, I'd like to repeat. Think about this for a second. I hope you're excited about the Word of God. You've got this rebellion against God and His anointed, Jesus Christ. And it comes to the point where this, the son is killed and he said, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He rose from the dead. And God said, all power is given unto you. And what did he do? He said, go and preach the gospel to every nation. And, and after this, but he says, listen, all power is given. He's going to be the one who judges. Right now there's the gospel and you can accept that and come to him on his terms. But fear, because if you don't, one day there's coming a day where there's going to be judgment. And so you've got to kiss the son. You've got to declare him to be king of your life. Richard Owen Roberts said, it's insanity to think that you can receive Jesus as Savior while rejecting Him as Lord. It is insanity to think that you can receive Jesus as Savior while rejecting Him as Lord. But let's open up the Bible to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. In the New Testament, Jesus is kissed at least twice. One guy kissed Jesus and went to hell. You can kiss him physically and yet never kiss the son. 
Judas came and he kissed a kiss of betrayal on Jesus Christ. But there was another woman that came and kissed Jesus. She was a sinner. She was a deep sinner. And she knew that her only hope was this king who had become a little baby who grew up. This was not any man before. This man was worthy of being kissed. He's not just a, a Jew. He's more than a Jew. He's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah. She didn't say anything of this stuff, but she came and she knew that this person was the only one who a sinner's need could meet. And so she went down and she was just, without saying any words, she was just kissing the answer to her need. And she kissed him. She kissed. She kissed. And Jesus said, her sins which are many are forgiven. Have you kissed the son? You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, one of the proofs of being saved, it's also one of the, the freedoms of being saved, when the Jew, when the religious person, now for many years I was religious. I was the son of Keith Daniel. Some of you might know what that means. Famous preacher, godly man. But I was not on my way to heaven. I read my Bible, but I was not on my way to heaven. I went to church and answered questions and was better than the other kids at answering Bible questions, but I was not on my way to heaven. I had religion, but I did not have Christ. And what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter um, uh, uh, three is that when the Jew looks on the Old Testament, on the scripture they had at that time, then there's a veil on his heart. He cannot see. It's just dead religion on the outside. He cannot see to be changed. And then it says these amazing words, but when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away in Christ. Now I can go to Romans, I can go to 1 John, I can go to various other portions, but this is the most clear portion where it says when we turn to Christ, when we repent, when we meet with God, when we kiss the Son, then suddenly there's things that happen in our life. One is that for the first time we read the Bible, it's a new book. Does it mean every single verse makes sense? No. Does it mean that every verse is exciting? He begat, he begat, he begat, he begat. No. But it means that there's something. It's almost like a light turns on because Jesus Christ is in your life and the Holy Spirit is in your life. And for the first time, John MacArthur puts it, it's like a light shines on certain verses. It doesn't change the meaning of the verses, but, but, but it's like it feeds your soul for the first time in, in that sense that you are changed. And a born-again person who has turned to Jesus Christ, the veil is taken off their heart, and that will be in their life. Charles Spurgeon said, if the Bible is a dry book to you, then you will be dry one day in hell. And I can go down the quotes of many Christians and preachers who understood this from the various parts of Scripture. Moody, D.L. Moody, said, he tried to become a Christian quite a few times, by the way, but there came a day, he said, when the Bible was a new book to him. He wasn't the best Bible reader after the Bible became a new book to him. He only read about 10 verses a day until one day he realized that he needed to read more. And then he read many times through the Bible, over 400 times. But even when he read a little as a young Christian, there came a point, he said, when, when, um, when the Bible was a new book to him. And he said, I know what the secret is. I was born of God. I was born again. 
The veil was taken off my heart, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says. And he said, you know what the secret was? First I had to surrender. So all the other times, all the other times Dio Moody tried to get saved. I'll tell you what he was doing. He was sitting up in the tree. You know the story of Zacchaeus? Jesus comes by and Zacchaeus is sitting up in the tree and Jesus looks up and one word changes his life forever. That word is Zacchaeus. Because now he suddenly realized this person knows me. And then he said, Zacchaeus, come down. Now, you know what many people do? And this is why, like, Moody tried and prayed. Moody prayed many times, Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, save me, and nothing happened. What Moody was doing is he was sitting up in that tree. Now, imagine Zacchaeus did this. You want me? Zacchaeus, come down. Wait a minute, Jesus. Father, I'm a sinner, and I've done sin, and I'm on my way to hell, and Jesus Christ died for my sins, and please come into my life. Thank you, Jesus, you can go on now. You say a prayer, but you're not going to follow him? Imagine you that sheep. The Bible says we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so you're part of this group that is in rebellion against Jesus Christ, walking on your way to hell behind Satan. And then one day you hear Jesus say, or a preacher say, or a track say, or the Bible say, you've got to repent. And come as your only hope is that Jesus died for your sins and he rose again. And then at Calvary you can be saved. And you say, wait, okay, great. Um, dear Father, I'm a sinner. I've done sin. Please come into my life. In Jesus Christ's name. And then you walk on with the crowd. And Jesus is going the other way. You can't accept Jesus and walk away from him. And that's what many people do. You see, Moody said... I know the secret of the day that I was born again. I understood the gospel. I understood that Jesus died for my sins, but they had to come to a point where I realized that we are in rebellion against the Lord and against His anointed. And God has raised Him up to be king. And all power is given unto Him. And there has to come a day where I kiss the Son. Well, I don't just say a prayer up in the tree or walk away from Jesus and think that I've got a, 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 the gospel under my arm to get me to heaven while I've never accepted Jesus Christ. The secret is, said Moody, is I had to surrender. Have you kissed the sun? You know, I prayed... By the way, I'm actually going to finish on time if that clock is right. Brother Don Caval stood up after I preached one year, and I remember him standing at the front, and he said, I almost had a heart attack. And everybody looked at him, and he said, Roy kept to his time. <laughs> I prayed many times to become a Christian. there's two things that I didn't understand and each time nothing happened to me the Bible was a dry book to me I had no love for God more than my father and mother there's two things that I didn't understand the one is repentance 
I just thought, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I want to say a prayer. I didn't understand that I was in rebellion against God and that I had to surrender and kiss the Son. And the other thing I didn't understand is that faith is not a feeling. <laughs> because then you'd be looking at yourself. It's where you look and who you touch. It can be as little as a clinging to the Word of God. It can be a touch. It can be a look at Jesus Christ. It can be touching the hem of His garment. And faith does not save you. Jesus saves you in response to your simple faith. And there came a day, I remember, in Cape Town, South Africa, where I kissed the sun. I'd said many times, Jesus, come in my life, and this and that and whatever, nothing happened. But after three days of struggling, I came to the end of myself. I swallowed, like you've heard before probably, I swallowed like you swallow a glass of water. I swallowed my pride, and I stood with nothing left but my sin. And my only hope was Jesus. And at that moment, when he was my king, when he was my only hope, when he was the only answer, when I came on his terms, not just to get a ticket to heaven, at that moment when, when the only hope was Jesus Christ, it was so simple, I could almost feel like I could touch him. And in one moment I said the wrong words, like that woman who kissed Jesus' feet. She didn't come and say the right words. She didn't say any words. I didn't say the right words, but I came as a sinner. My only hope was Jesus, and he saved me in a moment. And you know what's amazing? I got the Bible wrong at times, but it was a new book. I couldn't believe it. It's like something was changed inside my heart. And it was like you would read, and it was like things were just like it was amazing as God would be feeding me through the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 was true in my heart in a very real way. The veil was taken off in Christ. Let me tell you something. When it comes to Psalm chapter 2, if you have that open still, the very last words. I won't say I've never been sick. I won't say I've never had money, not went through times with very little money. I won't say there haven't been times I haven't wept through the nights when people died that I loved and the suffering that they went through. But this is true. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. It's worth it to kiss the sun. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much. We've given so little to you. We can. If we brought everything that ever we had from across the world, that ever we accomplished, we brought it to you, it would be like filthy rags. And then you gave your son to die for us. And Father, in this world of rebellion, it's so easy to forget those of us who are saved that we were once part of that rebellion and that you commend your love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Father, you died for your enemies. You gave your son to die for your enemies. This very rebellion that is vanity, that is stupidity, you gave your son to die for those who are rebels, to die for us. And Father, it's so wonderful to know that, that though the whole world stood against you, you raised your son from the dead and you declared him to be king and you gave him all power. And Father, you said to us, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth, therefore go ye and preach. 
the gospel to every creature. Father, let us have that heart that when we look at this world of rebellion that, that we will want to go out and to tell them, though we have power sometimes in our hands to hurt them, that you will put into our hearts to win them. And Father, I pray that you would, in those people of the year, the two type of people who need to kiss the sun, that you would work in those who are unsaved to realize they can't just say a prayer in the tree or as a sheep that's walking away from God and not come down. Father, that they have to come down from their pride and humble themselves before the king and kiss the sun, not like Judas in, 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 in deceit, Lord, but as that woman who came as the only hope or when I came 20 years back in that room in Cape Town and I kissed the sun and Father, thank you. It's worth it to be blessed evermore through Jesus Christ. Father, work through your Holy Spirit in those that are unsaved to kiss the sun and those who are backslidden to kiss the sun. And Father, lastly, I pray this. Thou knowest if my heart is broken over the fact that so many Christians are not excited about the Bible, the treasures that are in it, then your heart must be a million times more broken, dear Father. So Father, I ask you to put into hearts of young people here to spend time with the Bible. They've got a life ahead of them, dear Father, to take time to be holy, as we heard from the sermon this morning. To put aside time and not just spend time with television and games and everything else, Lord, but to actually find time to become men of the word, mighty in the scriptures. To go deep. To take the time. To redeem the time because the days are evil. And Father, I do pray the old people, those who have neglected the time already, that what is left of their lives, you would put into their lives, Lord. I, I know that D.L. Moody, your servant, over 100 years, 150 years back, he used to preach this. If I could just get you to read the Bible, then this series would have been a success. If I can just get you to study and sit at the feet of Jesus, then this would be a success. If that was in your heart, and you went and did it. Oh God, put in people's hearts to spend time with God every day. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.